I'm Siham Cyrene, and you are here for Better Conversations. And I think this is a huge question for leadership. And I'm not saying this in order to say, don't do it, it's impossible. I think it's a good intention and a very good goal. But I think it suggests that some of our processes in organizational life have to change. I think to your point, we have to get very, very much better at listening, but also to listening to a broader cross-section of people. And where we haven't done very well on the diversity front, if you look just at gender or ethnic diversity or um, sexual orientation, but if we're really going to be making legitimate decisions, as we hope to aid and benefit society, we need to have a better conversation with that society than I think currently most organizations are capable of. While we're gifted with speech, conversations, really good conversations, don't happen as much as we'd like. In this podcast, my guest and I deep dive into all the corners of what makes a conversation awkward and uncomfortable or warming and memorable. My guest is Dr. Margaret Heffernan, multi-time TED speaker, an award-winning author and former chief executive herself, who now mentors other CEOs and senior executives of major global corporations, among many other achievements. We can all agree that her latest book, Uncharted, is timely. Margaret is the antidote to corporate jargon and theoretical leadership. She's very much the mentor with whom leaders can feel both validated and safely challenged. In her words, perhaps she's giving them permission to pay attention to their own thoughts or hunches or observations, rather than preaching must-dos and shoulds. After all, isn't that how we really grow by listening? whether that's listening to others or listening to our own voice. In this conversation, Margaret talks about the value of asking questions, the power that leaders have, and the dilemmas that presents them with, the value of listening and holding spaces for others to speak honestly. She tells me how she has learned to do that and the surprise impact it has had on her own ability to influence people. And of course, we explored her perspective on conflict and disagreement and complexity and what makes people loyal to their leaders. A theme that permeates all of Margaret's work is social capital and how important it is in life and work. She's explored it extensively and something tells me it has been the golden thread of many of her conversations. In her latest book, Margaret comments, going into a crisis with years of generosity, reciprocity and trust already deeply embedded provides resilience and stamina. And so a place I'd like to start, get us um, thinking and talking about is 
from your perspective, you talk to a lot of people um, in lots of different scenarios. But um, just give us a flavor of day to day. Who is it that you are having conversations with and who you might want to be influencing in those conversations? So I work with an enormous cross section of people. I work with CEOs and senior executives of uh, FTSE 100 companies. I work with rising leaders of major organizations, some of them publicly traded companies, some of them uh, public institutions. I do quite a lot of work with and for the NHS. So, and I, and I also do quite a lot of work with kind of general groups of communities and people who, you know, come together to try to do something meaningful in the world. So it is a huge cross section from, you know, I guess high schools to boardrooms to governments around the world. So it's, I mean, it is a huge cross section. And, and what that means really is that I try to write in a way that's accessible to all of them. Um, that makes the work much harder for me because I'm pretty determined that the work should be jargon free. But I, I don't write business manuals. I write books about how all of us as human beings individually and collectively in the ways that we choose to organize ourselves uh, might be able to achieve better ends more easily. And from reading your work and listening to you, um, one of the things that I find refreshing is that you don't use business jargon. Um, that's what makes what you say and your observations of the business world and society um, so accessible. Um, and, and easy to get into. Well, I hope so. And I've been quite pleased with my latest book that a lot of quite young people, I'd say in their kind of mid mid to late 20s have found the book. And it seems to speak very directly to them, which just delights me no end. I mean, it was funny with, with Uncharted before I sent the final, final version off to the publishers. I did a word search for the word engagement because I was so determined that it shouldn't be in there. <laughs> because I'm so, so tired of hearing people talk about employee engagement and are people engaged? And I mean, this is engineering language, right? We talk about gears engaging. And I just, I mean, it's probably unfair to pick on one word, <laughs> but I just think when people use jargon, it's in order not to think about the idea behind the word. And when I find people using the same word over and over and over again, you know, I ask myself, what does it mean? And I often ask people what it means. And what I discover is they don't really know. Um, I guess my current bugbear is purpose. You know, everybody talks about having a purpose. And when you ask, well, what is a purpose? They, they look a little blank. And so anyway, you know, of course, I'm a kind of word nerd. Most writers are. But I just, I've, I just feel that, you know, just as we have a grammar checker, I wish we had a jargon checker. It would spit words out when we try yeah. to use them. Yeah. You're trying to get people to think. That's the, that's the essence that I get from your work is that you're trying to get people to think independently and step into spaces that are not necessarily comfortable that we do avoid. And, and I think jargon sometimes helps us avoid or allows us to be ignorant. Yeah. No, I think that's right. And I mean, it was, I explored that a little bit of that in uh, willful blindness because jargon is exactly as you say, something that prevents us from thinking or helps us not to think because we can come out with the, the a sort of bolus of jargon and it sounds terribly smart. But, you know, there's often not a lot of thought 
behind it. So it sounds like thinking, but it isn't. It's easy to slip into and it becomes meaningless, which is why it's lovely to have the freshness of the way you describe things and the stories that you tell. I'm curious, how were you inspired to, to write and communicate in this way? This is going to sound a bit mean and it isn't really, but when I was running companies, I would read lots of business books and because I was hungry to learn how to do what I was doing better. And for the most part, I just thought they were absolutely useless. I, I just kept thinking, well, this is all very fine in theory, but I can't actually use it. So it felt to me as if many of these books were written from such a distance and such a lack of experience that they weren't really real. So I did have a, a, some kind of desire to do something different. I think it's also fair to say that, you know, I'm an English graduate from Cambridge and one of the huge benefits of my education was not just learning how to read, which is pretty important, but having teachers who cared as much about how I expressed my ideas as what those ideas were and were pretty punctilious about how you express yourself, which was a kind of unexpected and fantastic benefit. And, you know, and I have favorite writers, of course, who I think do this brilliantly. Orwell, of course, is one. He's almost every writer's favorite writer in terms of the cleanliness of his prose. Um, I'm a gigantic fan of George Packer, who I think manages to produce creative nonfiction in a way that I have enormous respect for. And I read a huge amount of fiction in the summertime because I just want to expand the imaginative capacity of my own writing. So, and how do you find that translates into your actual oral conversations? Um, I don't know, really, because I'm not at the receiving end of them. I think what people typically find, for example, when I do a Q&A session after a talk I've given, is that what they get is something that's very uh, fresh and raw and unpackaged. So it may be a little rough around the edges, but it is honest. I think I think uh, you're being a little hard on yourself by saying it's you know um, raw around the edges. It, I think it is very honest, and it's and and that resonates with people. It allows them to kind of connect with those ideas and have that feeling of yeah, I know what that feels like, or you know, I've seen that happen. I've personally experienced it, and you're articulating it and giving it validity and making it yeah, this stuff does actually happen, and it's not couched in in or wrapped up or packaged, as you were saying, in, in other language. Um, it's just clean. This is what it is. Um, and, and I think there's not enough of that. Well, it's very, it's very gratifying to hear that. I think my observation also it, when I do things like that is I'm frequently not saying something that nobody's ever thought before. But what I'm doing for many members of the audience is validating what they have always thought but felt unsure about. And that's very, you know, that's very rewarding for me to sense that actually I may be giving them, as it were, permission to pay attention to their own thoughts and to say, actually, you know, those, those hunches you had or that instinct you had or that observation you made, you know, it's good and it's worth paying attention to. And, and it may well be that you know more than you know. And I think this is frequently the case. I mean, this is a big theme in willful blindness, which is it, to the degree that we're willfully blind, we do know things which we are sort of choosing to suppress. And if we chose to take more seriously 
what we notice and what we feel, we might be better informed and safer and wiser. And knowing how to go about questioning it, I imagine, as well, and looking at it and analyzing it instead of sort of pushing it away and going, maybe I've, maybe I've imagined that. Hannah Arendt talked about a conversation being, sorry, described thinking as being a conversation with yourself. And I think we often cut those conversations rather short. I'm reminded of a story which is in Willful Blindness, which is of an interview with an advertising chief executive who was one of the very, very few people who refused to work with Enron because he felt there was, as it were, something not quite right about the company. And I asked him how he knew this. And he came up with some, you know, frankly, rather banal replies. And I said, you know, I I don't think so, because other people, you know, could see that or know that or whatever. I think it's something deeper. And he told me this story, which is that his when he was growing up in Texas, his sister was severely disabled and he used to push her in a wheelchair to school every day. And he could see people looking at them rather pitting, but And he thought to himself, you know, these people get us really wrong. They don't seem to understand how much joy uh, my sister brings into our life and what a vital part of our family she is. You know, they miss so much about her and about us. And then he did something incredibly clever and he turned the question around on himself. And he said, well, if they're missing so much about us, what am I missing about them? And he said that became a kind of habit of mind. And it's, I mean, I still think it's a sort of spine chilling story. You know, I have this picture in my mind of this, you know, these two young kids on their way to school and just that fantastic thought, which is there is more to what's around us than we typically take time to see. But if we asked better questions, we would see more. It is a it is a spine spine tingling one, and certainly in in the work that I do, Margaret, this is the space that I find leaders struggle with a great deal is to just slow down and be more observing of what's going on, um, and and learn the skills of listening and asking questions and not jumping to conclusions or assumptions or or feeling like I have the answer, I have the answer, can I tell you? <laughs> but actually, just And it's really difficult because, of course, you know, they've got ahead typically by having the answers. Mm. Um, I think also there's this huge problem of power, which is it takes you further and further away from the coalface, so to speak. And something that I've been thinking about a lot, especially around this discussion of purpose and the notion of a company having a role in serving society as well as just employees and suppliers and stakeholders. And it seems to me that if we're going to go down that road, which I think is a good road to go down, and we have leaders in a position where they're thinking about the job or the role of their organization in society as a whole, how do they know what's good for society? And the truth is that most of the time, they are quite far removed from it. And this is a real problem. If you're going to start making decisions which you think are going to benefit a large swathe of the world, you better be very in touch with that. And I don't think that reading data or analysis quite does the trick. 
And I think one of the problems that occurs is that people start making generalizations. They make generalizations based on based on the news and information sources they read, which are so they're editing what's already been edited. So they get further and further away from any kind of lived experience. And yet they purport to make, be making decisions for the good of people they have frequently never encountered. And I think this is a huge question for leadership. And I'm not saying this in order to say, don't do it, it's impossible. I think it's a good intention and a very good goal. But I think it suggests that some of our processes in organizational life have to change. I think to your point, we have to get very, very much better at listening, but also to listening to a broader cross-section of people. And where we haven't done very well on the diversity front, if you look just at gender or ethnic diversity or um, sexual orientation. But if we're really going to be making legitimate decisions, as we hope to aid and benefit society, we need to uh, have a better conversation with that society than I think currently most organizations are capable of. How would you recommend someone do that? How do they step outside the data um, and, and actually get a little bit closer? Well, I think there are different ways to think about it. Um, and different people have different ways of doing it. I mean, some of the chief executives I work with, you know, sometimes they stay in touch with more of society because they come from very different backgrounds. Many of my clients are the first person in their family to go to university, for example, and to the degree and, and often the only person in their family to go to university. So to the degree that they stay in touch with that background, that's going to give them a better sense of a more rounded world than they're going to find in the um, first class lounge in an airport. So that can be very helpful. I'm very intrigued, and I write about this in Uncharted, both by the process of citizens' assemblies and the process of scenario planning, where the opportunity for lived experience to impact thinking is very powerful, clearly very powerful. You know, I wrote in Uncharted about a scenario planning exercise in Mexico, which assembled an extremely diverse range of participants. And at the end of it, um, Alberto Fernandez, who's one of the leading business people in Mexico, said, business people don't know Mexico. And he said this because, you know, the, the experience had changed him so profoundly that he had gone into it thinking, you know, I run lots of really successful businesses. He runs quite a lot of very impressive nonprofit organizations. He's an extremely curious individual with quite a broad cross-section of collaborators. And yet even he said that there was so much about Mexico he didn't know until he met people whose lives were radically different from his own. And I think it was extremely brave of him to say this in public at a public event. But I think it's a challenge to all people in leadership positions, which is to find mechanisms and make time to ensure that you do know the society you purport to serve. And speaking for myself, I would say I pretty much operate on the assumption that I don't. So I try and not, you know, not by any means perfectly. I try very hard to work with 
organizations and people radically different from myself. You know, I've done work with the British Army, which is about as far as, you know, far from me as you can get. I live in a very small village in Somerset where I chose to go on the parish council. You know, I try to find opportunities to put myself in places I don't naturally belong because I can never do enough of that. But it is a fantastic reminder of how different the lives in a society are from each other. So my kind of operating principle is um, there's almost always something I'm missing and I have to try and figure out what it might be and who might fill that gap for me. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back right after this. Better conversations. We all want to have them at work. Have you ever felt dread about an upcoming chat with a colleague you needed to have or had that sinking feeling when that meeting didn't go as well as you hoped? When we can provide a safe space in conversation, the other person feels able to open up without fear. As leaders, part of helping our team do their job effectively is to motivate and guide our people to deliver on their goals. And when we have successful conversations, we become more influential, encourage deeper collaborations, and foster true connection at work. Did you know it's the number one skill that sets the top leaders apart from the rest? That's why we've created a 12-week online course hosted by executive coach Seherm Sirene, helping you to navigate those tough conversations with skill and compassion. Enroll today at leaderswhocoach.today. There's quite a lot in there that I want to ask you about. One is around experimentation. One is around, you know, finding your way back to the society that you came from um, or, you know, that you were involved in. But there's something, I forget where uh, you wrote it, but it was uh, the sense that perhaps we've been chasing a reality of success in business that's actually um, left many leaders quite, and, and when I read it, I felt quite sad about it, lonely, that, you know, they'd lost touch with friendships, friends, family, and were pursuing something that has been a model of what to go after in life and how to succeed. Yeah, I mean, I feel quite worried about that. I mean, I think the section of the book you're referring to is when I, I mean, there's a section in the book about existential crises and looks at business leaders running organizations when for one reason or another, they faced extinction and how they survived. And much to my amazement, every single one of them said that what got them through were their friends. And yet when I talk to, you know, the rising leaders that I work with, most of them say, well, I used to have friends, but now there's no time. And when I heard this, I actually organized a session to bring some of these senior leaders in to talk about how important friendship is to these younger aspiring leaders, because I thought this is really important. This is a fundamental source of resilience. And of course, we're confronting that, you know, unexpectedly, um, in the lockdown where people are cut off from their social relationships at work. And I'm very struck by how much people miss that. I mean, one, <laughs> one CEO I talked to the other day said something I thought was wonderful and absolutely true. Uh, she said, 
I even miss the people I don't like. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought I was so honest. And of course, the, the truth is that one of the great things about working with other people is that we derive a sense of our own identity to some degree by contrast. I'm more like him, less like her. You know, I would feel closer to these people, but those people are kind of interesting. They're the kind of how we locate ourselves. Without these rich relationships, I think we are lesser. I think we are poorer. And I think we feel less secure in ourselves. So I think the idea that, you know, success is the, the old cliche of getting to the top of the ladder getting lots of money, getting a big house, getting a nice car, kids at smart schools, high-achieving kids, all that stuff. Um, you know, I don't think that they're in tr- necessarily intrinsically bad things, but I think we have to consider much more the cost of them because, you know, the opportunity cost, which is when you're working hard to get all these things and they can't be got without really hard work. What are you leaving behind? And sometimes it's fine. <laughs> I mean, I left behind a lot of housework. And now that in lockdown, I'm doing it all over again. You know, I don't really think it was a huge net contributor to my life. <laughs> but some of the other things I certainly put on hold when I was running companies. Um, when I stopped running them, I worked fast and furiously to resuscitate because I woke up kind of with a shock to how much I'd really let them dwindle in my life. In my life, So I think much of the world is coming to a recognition that this ever accelerating race for growth is bad for everyone and everything, that we can't go on like this, that one of the problems of a competitive culture is that it is specifically insatiable and there is no end to it except at the end. And if that isn't what we want, then we really have to pull back, think again, recalibrate, and give up some seriously toxic habits. And the irony is that the, the further in that direction we go towards toxicity, the more we lose the skills for building our relationships, for having the conversations that can help us in business and and something you talk about, social capital. I relate to that in the sense of, you know, many of my clients are trying to get to a space of being influential. They can actually be very senior in their roles and within the organization, but they don't feel they have much power over other people's thoughts in the sense that they don't feel like people listen to them. And, um, and when we dig into it, what we find is that the strength of their relationships is, isn't there. Something that you said, I think, towards the end of your book is it's the depth of the relationships. You talked about generosity, reciprocity and trust that are already deeply embedded that are going to help you get through the tough times. And influence is kind of part of that. It's how do I get my team to take on board what I'm saying? Or how do I get them to enjoy their work more? Um, and therefore, you know, how can I help them be more productive? And so much of it comes down to the strength of their relationships um, with their peers, with their boss, as well as members of their team. Yeah. And I think what's really interesting is that certainly when I work with clients and they are tackling this issue of 
influence. You know, I'll typically ask them how much they know about their colleagues. And it's rarely very much. So what that says to me is they aren't really interested in them as people. And I think, well, if you're not really interested in me as a person, your capacity to influence me is almost nil, right? If you don't care about me, why should I care about you? So I guess what's going on in that is they're thinking, well, I have to have a carrot for them. I have to have an incentive, a reward, um, so that maybe they'll side with me if they think there's something in it for them. So in if they make that jump, they've gone from relationships to transactions. Well, now they're really not going to get anywhere. They're just going to be seen quickly as manipulative. And they've gone from relationship to politics. And it's quite interesting because I would say in general, women don't make that mistake for the simple reason that since mostly they haven't had power, their only source of influence is relationships. So they become very good at it. But I don't think that that's always the case. I have had a female client who I think absolutely thought that everyone was out there to be either uh, frightened, motivated by fear or hope of reward. And as a consequence, worked in a large organization where I don't think anyone trusted her and I don't think she trusted anyone. And as a consequence, could not really get anything done. She relied entirely on her staggering technical expertise. But there's a point at which that isn't going to be enough. And when she hit that point, she had nothing else to work with. And, you know, from a professional perspective, as a consequence, she failed. So I'm sort of amazed, to be honest, that that this kind of thing has to be taught or revived. Um, and I think to some degree, we have really let economics eat our brains. You know, we've really fallen for this language that said, you know, you need to incentivize people. They won't do anything if there isn't a profit for them in the energy that they're going to expend. And I remember sitting through a whole day of talks organized by a big public institution in the UK, looking at the future of the corporation. And it was all about how companies that paid attention to culture were two to 3% more profitable and all this sort of stuff. It was all about um, incentives. And how do you incentivize people to behave in the right way? And I got more and more annoyed. And unfortunately for them, I was the last speaker of the day. And I just said, what is my incentive for looking after my child? What is my incentive for loving my husband? What is my incentive to be polite to people I've never met before and will never meet again? I mean, this is just rubbish. This is the same bad thinking that suggests that GDP is the economy or that the, that, um, the stock market is the economy. They aren't. You're mistaking the shadow for reality. You're locked inside Plato's cave and you don't even know it. You know, you have completely missed what's going on in organizations. And they look kind of staggered. For one thing, you know, that there was a presentation that actually had some energy and humanity in it. But also that you know, really what I was saying is that the day had been a waste of time. And I think in terms of understanding organizational dynamics, it had been. They'd been looking in the wrong place for the wrong stuff. It doesn't surprise me, and I don't think it surprises you either, that that's so 
present and, and back to what we were saying earlier about jar, you know, business jargon and engagement and so on. It just rings hollow and it misses the whole point. I mean, you can put lots of systems and throw lots of money at um, measuring or, you know, having a, having a reward to incentivize people. But at the end of the day, the simplest and cheapest thing to do is to sit down and have a conversation and get to know somebody and see beyond. And a similar reaction comes up in me when people talk about corporate values. And I just think the best values are the values in the people that you've hired and the people who are doing the jobs because it's a passion of theirs. Those are the values that we should be spending time and effort getting to know. And trust that actually, generally, um, we all hold good values. And so if you can only see your way to reaching people in that way or understanding that, then you have all the values you need as an organization <laughs> to flourish. They're sitting in all the people, um, you know, in your organization. Well, they might not be. Um, I mean, it depends a lot on how far you hire for values congruence. And there is a paradox in here, which is that if you hire for values, you're going to get a lot of people who are very similar and they're going to get along really well, but the quality of conflict will be a little thin and they definitely won't represent society. So there is a problem here, which is I think that actually everyone in an organization will not share all your values. They will probably share some. I don't believe organizations are very good at changing people's values, and I don't think that they should be. I think that they can be places where people with different values can find ways to work quite happily together, and that the difference is a strength. But I think the organizations where everyone has roughly the same values have a huge problem in terms of creativity and avoiding groupthink. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm not talking about this purely in the abstract. I did some work some time ago with an organization, which is a healthcare system in the United States, and it's run by a, a religious organization. So these are people who absolutely have the same values, and they come together because of those values, and the values have defined the organization. But they themselves recognize that this can be problematic. And we did a fantastic exercise with them where I, I put them in pairs and asked them to have conversations about the differences between them. Now, this is a very difficult exercise. I do it with a lot of groups and it's much harder than it sounds because our whole socialization teaches us in a conversation to find points of commonality. And we do that instinctively very, very fast. Um, we'll quickly, in a matter of minutes, find out, you know, that we uh, grew up in a similar place or we went to the same school or the same university or studied the same subject or both worked in the same company or something. And we do it with astounding speed. And we're doing that because we're checking each other out to see, are you safe? Are you enough like me that I can feel safe? And this is, you know, a, an absolutely core human behavior. So to ask people, to sit down and find out what they don't have in common feels quite um, counterintuitive and risky. And in the course of this exercise, which had to go on, I mean, often in groups, I'll do it for, you know, 20 minutes. In this case, it had to be quite a lot longer. 
you know, they found out all sorts of things, you know, that one likes and the other doesn't, that one has done that the other hadn't, that one belief that one has that the other doesn't share. And the point of the exercise is this is what you have to offer each other. This is your gift to each other. Somebody who's identical to me doesn't really have anything to offer me. You know, one reason I sit on the parish council is because everybody on it is completely different for me. They don't really know what I do. They don't very much care. I don't know very much about what they do. I do care because it's interesting because I could learn from it. So I think, you know, I think we have to be quite careful about, you know, the, the jargon phrase is values alignment. You know, because when I hear a phrase like that, I see people goose-stepping down boulevards. So I think we have to be quite careful in kind of setting the parameters of the kinds of people we want working together. But within that, finding as much um, variety as, as we possibly can. And there is, right? Yes, there is. The richness. There absolutely is, but it does take effort, deliberate effort to draw it out. And I think in general, in most organizations, everybody's too busy to do that. It's frowned upon as not relevant. And people kind of assume that they know each other when often they scarcely do. Although I would say, you know, some of my very best clients and some of the very best leaders I've known take this really seriously. And I remember one client I worked with and he could tell me the whole life story of all of his direct reports and where they were in their lives at the moment and how their kids were doing at school and how their marriage was and whether they were moving house. I mean, it was absolutely dazzling. And you thought, of course, people want to work for this guy. Of course they do. He cares about them. You know, they're going through a divorce. He cares about the stress that they're under and not just because it might impact his work product but because it's a terrible thing to be going through a divorce. And um, and he wasn't able to do this on top of his work. This is how he did his work. Right? And people right. adored him. And under periods of stress, of course, they would do anything for the organization because they didn't think of the organization as a brand. They thought of it as their colleagues. And that's the strength of his relationship, right? That was the depth you know, not not everyone can do that, of course, but um, you can go some way towards it, and it's not hard to do, right? It's 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 just making the time and having the conversation and being genuinely interested. There was something in an article that you wrote for the FT at the end of uh, last year um, it was around changing your mind, and there was something in there that you said I loved, which is the question isn't how to avoid conflict; it's um, how to do it well. Yeah. And I think that, you know, when it comes to important decision making or when it comes to genuine innovation, you know, conflict is at the heart of that. Important decision making has to be stress tested and it can only be stress tested by debate and argument. And it's interesting because I was talking to a chief executive yesterday, had had the same experience I had in a board meeting which was it's very difficult to do conflict anyway, but it's very, very difficult to do it remotely um, because you can get pick up no sense of from body language or eye line and things like that. You know, am I completely alone here or am I am I really connecting with other people? 
And the consequence of that is that the easiest decision um, is readily accepted because it means we can move on. Now, I think technology makes it harder, but I've seen exactly the same behavior in, bo- in you know, real life boardrooms. So we were talking about how do we, how can we get around that? And really the only thing I could come up with is, okay, in this senior leadership team of eight people, I think you need to put them into breakout rooms in pairs so that they can really have a much freer one-to-one conversation about, you know, is this really a priority? Is this really what we should be doing? Does it really make sense? And so on and so forth. Because I think in the large groups, it just becomes, it's just too, it's too difficult and it's too dangerous. And when you come back from the breakouts, actually speaking, not just for yourself, tends to give people a little bit more confidence. But, you know, I think I first started to understand this thing about conflict when I wrote in Willful Blindness about British doctor who did some research trying to understand why after the Second World War, childhood cancers were increasing. And what was peculiar about this in particular was that this was among affluent families and disease typically is correlated with uh, poverty. And what she discovered was that in general, the kids who were dying of cancer had mothers who had been x-rayed when they were pregnant. And she published her findings. People were very struck by it. And she expected, as one might expect, that the practice of x-raying pregnant women would stop. And in fact, it didn't stop for 25 years. The British establishment didn't believe her, although the data was pretty clear. And it threatened their mental model of disease at the time, something called threshold theory, which argued that everything's safe up to a point, only after which it becomes dangerous. And what her data showed was actually, you know, even tiny exposures to radiation are very damaging for a fetus. And one of the things I wondered about in this story was how on earth she kept going for 25 years having this argument. And I discovered that she collaborated with a statistician named George Neal. And George Neal said his job was to prove that she was wrong, that it was something else, to slice and dice the data as many ways as he could and find another explanation. And if he couldn't, then she had to keep going. Now, this is, I think, a tremendous illustration of what real collaboration looks like, which is tell me where I'm wrong. Tell me what I've missed. Tell me what else it could be. Tell me how else we could do this. Tell me what the other options are. It's in a process by which I understand that the argument you give me is a gift. You're helping me. You're helping me to take my idea or decision and stress test it or make it better or identify where the loopholes are or where the risks are. And this is how organizations think, is by argument and debate. And in order to be able to do that, requires that we feel safe enough with each other. And to feel safe enough with each other, we have to know each other. Right. And they say you're less likely to get into an argument if you have that strength of relationship and you know each other, um, because we can, we can get past that. You know, we accept who the other person is more readily when we know them, as opposed to not knowing someone very well, not knowing what their life entails. Right. Well, when we don't know them very well, we just um, project all of our biases onto them. And that's how we get people wrong. 
Do you think also there's an element there of language as well, not not knowing how to get into a discussion like that, not having skills like, you know, debating, um, if you ever did debating uh, at school and so on, it is actually quite helpful. It gets us comfortable. Um, but generally, we're expected to conform or to say yes or Yes, I, I mean, I agree with that entirely. I think that actually formal education prepares us poorly for this generally because it tells us there's a right answer and if you get it, you're clever. And if you don't get it, you're stupid. So I think actually learning how to have these debates and arguments is crucial. And it's one of the reasons I sit on the board of the Center for Effective Dispute Resolution because I think the skills involved in dispute re- resolution are really fundamental to good work. And I see, you know, organizations where there is, people have so few skills and so little confidence in dispute resolution that they'll just duck the argument altogether. And there's some very good research that shows when you ask executives, you know, do you have issues or concerns at work that you don't voice? The vast majority of executives will say yes. So what that means is that it sort of comes back to what we were saying about how much more we know than we dare to confront. What that means is that people have ideas and they also can see risks that worry them. That's in their head, but organizations are poor at creating the space in which they'll articulate them. And the reasons that they give as to why don't they raise their issues and concerns, the first reason is typically fear of retribution from colleagues or supervisors. And the second reason is futility, which is, well, I could do it, but it wouldn't make any difference. So why bother? So, you know, this, uh, the understanding that the debate is worth having and the confidence that I know how to do it in a way that's, that's perceived as productive and constructive. These become really important aspects, I think, of a corporate culture. Yeah, and the ability to regulate our own emotion when someone says or something's going on that we we strongly disagree with. How can we kind of uh, channel it, rein it in, do whatever is necessary so that we can keep the communication open? And a thought that I kind of have been sitting with for a while is that we are responsible for making sure others are receptive to listening to us. Yeah. So the the onus is on us to regulate how we manage our emotions, how how we put stuff across, whether we encourage that discussion or not. I I think that's absolutely right. But I think increasingly, you know, what I try to do when I encounter something I disagree with is I try to think, hmm, where's that coming from? What's it about? What's behind it? Um, I mean, I had this experience probably two days ago where someone said something in a meeting and I was really kind of taken aback. And I thought, okay, but this is somebody who's intelligent, whom I've enjoyed working with. I'm not a nitwit, you know. So what is this telling me? So to take it seriously, not dismiss it because I don't like it, but saying, but take it seriously. You know, this is not something she would have said if she didn't mean it. She's not a stupid person. I need to understand better what she means and where it's coming from. And I think we you know, again, it comes back to this thing that if you know people, unfortunately, I have worked with this woman, you know, over a, a period of a couple of years. Um, if you know people, you will step back and think, okay, I need to understand this better. But if you don't, well, it's just easy to dismiss them as, well, they're just idiots. Which means, of course, 
that you learn nothing, right? right? Right. Because actually there might be something in what they're saying. It's just the minute you dismiss them, you lose the opportunity to find out what it was. I've got a question around experimentation. But also, I'd love to just have a chat around your best conversation habits, the things that you've had to learn, um, and, and maybe the areas that you're still working on as we all are. Experimentation, there was um, a phrase in your book, um, Uncharted, and you said the great advantage of experiments is that they stop you from being stuck. And I love that. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, one of the arguments in my book is that we become very captive to what I think of as a planning mindset, which is it's like we can't go out, the, get out the door without, um, you know, having mapped our journey, having bought our tickets, having planned everything in advance. And the danger of this is that um, it makes us quite timid and unimaginative. Uh, we're unwilling to take a risk or try something until we have some kind of guarantee that it will work. And I see this very specifically as it manifests in our woeful failure to rise to the challenge of climate change. It's like we're all waiting for the master plan. By the time the master plan arrives, you know, it may well be too late. But, you know, on a less epic scale, I think there are many organizations, for example, which can see you know, digitization coming, things like that. And until they have a master plan, they won't do anything. And this causes them to lose time and it causes them I think, to lose a lot of the energy and creativity of the people inside those organizations. So I've written a lot about organizations which have, you know, done various experiments and not, and many of them are quite small. Um, but what they do is they experiments reveal aspects of the complex system that a company is and can reveal, or doesn't, or doesn't promise to reveal, but can reveal, um, opportunities for change. You know, one was, uh, in the Bank of England, where uh, the chief data officer knew he was going to have more and more, the workload would expand and the resources would not. And rather than doing the typical thing of going away to a swanky hotel with the senior leadership team to plan some change program, just explained the circumstance to the entire department and said, what do you think will make us more productive? And they came up with 12 experiments of which um, some were gigantic wins, uh, some were marginal wins, and some were, you know, a waste of not much time. And so that hugely changed both the thinking, the thinking in the organization. Wow, there are more ideas here than we ever thought. And it radically, you know, addressed their productivity challenge. So, you know, that was a, you know, it was a, it was a very, very excellent example of experiments. I also interviewed uh, people working in a large retailer in the UK named John Lewis, um, which has actually proliferated experiments in their very federalized structure across their stores all over the country. And, you know, in many cases, they'd found all sorts of things that hugely motivated people that, you know, you would never get out of a change program. And two things interesting happened, and I'm, not, I'm still not quite sure how I feel about them. One is that, um, they keep doing them because they feel they give a lot of energy and hope to people working in the organization. You know, we can change things. But they have pretty specifically decided not to scale the ones that seem to work because they say once they scale it, it all becomes 
a kind of bureaucratized program and some of the energy goes out of it. Now, I'm not sure I agree with that second part. I think some of the things they've done uh, probably could scale across the whole organization quite effectively. But I do take their point that indigenous experimentation achieves a quality of legitimacy that nothing else will. And so I think that's quite interesting, you know, which is in, a, in essence, they're telling these different branches that actually how they change is to some significant degree up to them. And they think that energy is more potent than scaling what the individual regions find. But in both cases, you know, centralized power would never have found these things. And so I think instead of waiting for the multi-million pound change program, which, you know, the research shows us most of them fail, uh, we're much better off working more locally and sourcing ideas from within. And I think it's true. I think experiments give people hope. And I wonder whether that particular example is about local identities that actually, I guess that's the energy and the potency they're talking about is what happens locally is created by individuals and there's a, there's a cohesion, there's an identity of the group. I think that's right. And I think also that, um, you know, that, that locally people will come up with experiments that speak to how people feel locally. So the uh, enthusiasm for them is probably greater. And I think the knowledge that these things have been sourced from within rather than imposed from without is really crucial. And I think increasingly as you know, organizations know that they need to change, I think they do better to try to source the, cha- the direction of change from within rather than engage, you know, very pricey consultants to come in with their manual, which is going to be a cookie cutter change program, which may or may not connect with the, with the real business and the people working within them. This has been a really lovely uh, conversation with you, Margaret. I, I am curious as to what people, what would you say people love about having a conversation with you? <laughs> um, I have no idea. I mean, you'd have to ask them. I think that, um, I think <laughs> part of what they like is the sense that it's not going to be routine, that it will be unpredictable and it will take them places they perhaps didn't see that they could go. Um, it's certainly what people say to me they like about my books, which is they start in places and then end in places that really surprise them that it doesn't feel like a sort of hackneyed narrative. I mean, people say to me they very much appreciate the way that I tell stories, and the stories are what people remember. And I write them as stories because that's how we have always remembered everything. So it isn't that there isn't a ton of data behind my work. There is usually far more than probably even I needed. but. Nobody's going to remember the data. And if they want to, they can look it up. But what they'll remember is the narrative, which illustrates an idea. So I think, you know, I like to think that people like that. I like to think that people like my curiosity about them, because that's, you know, typically what drives my conversation. 
is who are you and what are you doing and why are you doing it and what do you know that I don't know? And I think, I mean, I try very hard and I think with varying degrees of success uh, to listen really hard. And I think I've always done this because, you know, I started off life as a radio producer where, you know, you're interviewing people, so you better listen. <laughs> um, although many don't, <laughs> let's be honest. But I also had a period of in my life where I was working with a, a company and I felt I was talking too much. And I made the decision that in our monthly meetings, I would not say anything unless I felt there was something absolutely crucial that had to be said and hadn't been. And two things happened. One is I became a better listener because I wasn't thinking about when can I jump in to land my dazzling point. But the other thing is that the respect that my colleagues had for me went up enormously, uh, which completely surprised me. So this was, if you like, a kind of experiment of my own. And of course, I learned a lot more about other people by listening to them. Uh, they became less categorizable or stereotyped. So I try to do that everywhere I go. Now, it's difficult because I'm also paid to talk. <laughs> so it's not, it's not something you can do all yes. the time. But, um, but it is something I, I do consciously work at. And the fact that um, your colleagues regarded you more highly because of that, why do you think that happened? Because I didn't open my mouth unless I had something important to say, which is another way of saying I didn't waste their time. Do you think any of it was because they felt you were listening to them? Oh, definitely. Definitely. And I think it's a very important thing to appreciate how meaningful it is to people when they feel listened to. It really changes the dynamic. And mostly in meetings, People feel they have to fight to be listened to. When actually the, the, the sort of balance shifts enormously if you are doing the listening. That's right. The influence increases significantly. Not just because you hardly speak, therefore, you know, um, <laughs> we should listen when you do. I think it's just that sense of, you know, well, they're, taking, they're making an effort to, to hear me out um, and, and creating this space for me to talk. Yes, and if I'm being taken seriously, I better be serious. Right. But I think, you know, we have this phrase, giving someone the floor. It is saying, you know, listening to someone is giving them the space to describe what they think or what, how they feel. So it is, a, it is a kind of gift. I'm truly appreciative of the time talking about um, conversations. And I wonder what your, what would be one thing that, all leaders could do just shift one thing um, about how they are in conversations. What what might that be? Um, listen and ask questions. And I mean, that's it. That's it. And I think take a leaf out of your book, Margaret. Just being willing to observe observe the world and people around us um, a lot more. Yeah, it's interesting. I have a, a client at the moment who is absolutely brilliant, has a titanic brain and is pretty inexhaustible. 
And he is struggling with his colleagues, to be honest, because he talks too much. And he talks too much partly because his brain is exploding with ideas and also because he cares passionately for the organization and really wants to to save it. It's in a pretty difficult situation. And so he's, you know, his energy is all about enthusiasm and passion and commitment. And it's extremely difficult for him to understand how counterproductive his sharing of his genius is. And it really is genius, but that's not enough. That having brilliant insights and total commitment is still not enough because people tune him out because he talks so much. And it's a, it's a real challenge as to what kind of experience might help him to understand what's going on. Because he struggles feeling that he doesn't have the influence he wants, and he's right, but he doesn't really understand why. Because he has all these brilliant ideas, um, but does, can't really, he's never had the experience, I think, of sitting across the table from someone like himself. So it's really hard for him to understand that all of his goodwill and all of his genius isn't actually useful because of the way in which it's being communicated. And it's a very, you know, it's a very hard problem that I'm struggling with at the moment, which is how can I get him to understand what it's like to be on the other side of the table from him? It's almost like there is that massive desire to help or to invigorate or to encourage and so on. But it's the quality and the quantity of it is just too, too much that people end up having to protect themselves almost from so much information. Yeah. And it's overwhelming. It takes energy, right, to listen to. And they're overwhelmed already. You know, the context is overwhelming. Well, I hope I hope that situation resolves itself <laughs> with a good story. Well, I hope so, one way or the other. <laughs> yeah, it's a tough time right now. I'm hearing that you know there is so much ambiguity and so much uncertainty. Your book is exceedingly timely, um, but there is this um, ambiguity, and as leaders, we have to have an- we need to have answers because that's what makes things move forward. Uh, and have that certainty and, and that's taken away from all of us right now so yeah yeah no i think that's right margaret thank you so much this has been fantastic um really enjoyed chatting to you about conversations well thank you for a wonderful conversation i mean i always feel bad in these situations because i'd like to ask you as many questions if you asked me but i know that's not the deal <laughs> <laughs> another time another time indeed I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Better Conversations with me, Siham Cyrene. And if you did, leaving me a lovely review and rating on Apple Podcast will help me reach more listeners who want to have better conversations at work and in their private lives. You can check out show notes at betterconversations.co forward slash podcast. If you're a regular subscriber, brilliant, lovely to have you back. And if this is your first time, Hit subscribe, leave a review and tell a friend. A screenshot and an Instagram story would be going above and beyond. And I would be very grateful. Please tag me at Siham Cyrene 
all one word, S-E-H-A-A-M-C-Y-R-E-N-E. And of course, I'll tag you right back. So, what would you like to hear my future guests and I talk about? Or perhaps you would like to be my guest because you've got a strong point of view that you'd like to share or kick about with me on the podcast. Drop me a note, podcast at betterconversations.co. I'd love to hear from you. And if you are a leader who knows you could achieve so much more in your career and be way more influential by having better conversations and stronger relationships, then do consider enrolling for my 12-week online course, Leaders Who Coach. You'll find the curriculum, videos, and a whole load more at leaderswhocoach.today. Thanks for listening. I'm Siham Sirene, and this has been a better conversation.